Today we're talking about the story around a young boy named Ichabod. And the goal behind this series is to take an ancient story and find some modern application for our lives today. So God, what do you have for me today that I can learn from today from a, something that happened literally 3,000 years ago? There's something for you and I. And we're going to jump straight into our message this morning, thinking about what is the big picture purpose? Why do we do what we do? Now, some of you get up in the morning and tomorrow morning you'll get up because you know you have bills to pay. Others of you will be forced to get up because you chose to have children. <laughs> they will tell you when you're going to get up and when you're going to get out of bed and how long you're allowed to sleep for. But there's the things you think to yourself, why do I do what you do? You know, and you want to live life more than just because I have bills to pay or because I am compelled to. We want to think bigger and greater than just ourselves. What is something that's bigger and greater than just you that's going to last longer than just until the next round of bills comes out? There's an underlying ultimate goal we find throughout the Bible from the beginning to the end. And it's a simple phrase of glorify God. In the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter number 10, verse 31, the Bible says, whatever you do. As I read that, I'm pretty sure it means everything that we do. I think it's pretty clear. Whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. You are in church today. Well done for coming to church today. But we encourage you, you can come to church today for not for the glory of God at all. You can come with a bad attitude and you can come saying, I'm here because of various things. Sorry if you have your arms folded right now. But also the other side of that is we can do some seemingly small and normal mundane things for the glory of God. And it becomes something bigger and greater than just the here and now. But when we fail to live for the glory of God, we suffer the negative consequences. Our principle for today is the same principle we've had the last couple of weeks. And I tried to change it up, but just it was so good. I'm going to do it again. And it is this. I must trust God and live by faith. We've been looking through that with a number of different Bible characters through the course of this series. But I must trust God and live by faith. Let me turn that around the other way. When we fail to trust God, we continue to live by faith. But what do we have faith in? My proposition to you is that Every single one of us is living by faith, but faith in something that may or may not be God. Throughout the course of this series, I've been introducing you to a disease that you may or may not be familiar with. It's a new disease called someday-itis. And we've talked about it over the course of the last five weeks, how someday-itis, we can often put off until tomorrow the things that we're supposed to do today. And it's so easy to think to ourselves, someday I will trust God. Someday I will live in faith towards Him. But 
if our ultimate goal is to glorify God in everything that we do, that is a big aspiration goal that is absolutely achievable if we break it up into small daily steps of obedience. Benjamin Franklin is famously quoted for saying this, Don't put off until tomorrow what you can do today. You see, when we fail to trust God and we fail to live by faith in God, we continue to live by faith, but it will negatively affect our current and the next generations. I want you to think about that. What you are doing today and the life that you are living today, the impact that you are making will impact the future. Are you impacting the next generation of your friends and family, of your children and grandchildren? Are you impacting them to ultimately glorify God? Or are you going to draw them away like we're going to find out in the story of this young boy, Ichabod? If you have a story that maybe your past, you look back upon it and go, my past is something that I'm not happy with, I'm not proud of. It's fact, I want to make that cut and that tie. Let me challenge you and really encourage you that throughout the Bible, we see the line and story of God's grace. And your story of your past may be that you've lived your entire life in the past trusting in yourself. And you've been suffering through the consequences of trusting in yourself and having faith in yourself, and you're suffering the consequences of not glorifying God, let me encourage you. The Bible tells us that we can make that change. We can break that tie of the past. And today forward, you can live a new life, not in your own strength, but through the power of Christ. Every single one of you has faith. Your negative past does not have to be your future. In the book of Psalms, chapter 20, verse 7, it says, Some trust in chariots and some in horses. And in the day when this was written, a chariot and a horse, these were mighty things of battle. But it says, But we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Today we're talking about Ichabod. Now, Ichabod is a kind of fun word to say. So if you want to say the word Ichabod, go ahead and say it, because it is kind of fun to say. And Ichabod is a story and an account of a young boy who was born in a very dark time. He was born in a very difficult and low time in Israel's history. Let me give you a little bit of background. Around 1100 BC, we find the account of Ichabod. And the name Ichabod is a unique name. At that time, people would name their children because I've named you this, not just because it's cute or because it's on the top 10 most popular names of the day list. It's because something was happening in their life and this was going to represent something that and helped them to remember and something was happening in the world or in their lives today. The name of Abraham. Abraham used to be called Abram. Then God changed his name to Abraham, which literally means the father of a multitude. And of course, Abraham was the father of the nation of Israel. We have people like Moses, and his name was given to him by the Pharaoh's daughter when she brought him out of the bulrushes and out of the river. She named him Moses because it literally means to draw out or to pull out. And she said, I drew him out of the water. 
there's another person in the Bible named Jabez. And Jabez, when he was born, really hurt his mother. And so she named him Pain. And Jabez literally walked around as, hello, my name is Pain. And the Bible says, because she, this is her talking, she says, I gave birth to him in pain. So some of you maybe need to name your children. You hurt me a lot. And then you have Jesus. The name Jesus literally means Savior. And you have a boy named Ichabod. And Ichabod means the glory has departed. Talk about the glory of God. The glory of God has left us. It says in 1 Samuel chapter number 4, verse 21, And she, that is Ichabod's mother, named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel. 1100 B.C., so almost over 3,000 years ago, this account took place. Let me give you a little background in history. God was working at this time, and to put you in the, in the time frame, you, of course, had the nation of Israel that was born with Abraham. They went into Egypt and were in Egypt for hundreds of years. God raised up Moses and led the children of Israel out of Egypt into the wilderness, and they were there for 40 years. During that time, God set up his law. He set up their practices for worship with the tabernacle and the Ark of the Covenant and all the various things for their worship. And then after that, they, through Joshua, were led out of the wilderness into the, their promised land, the land of Canaan. And they went through and defeated the other nations, but they didn't do a very good job of defeating them. And they remained many, many various nations still in their land that would negatively influence Israel. And Israel was easily and happily influenced in the negative, And they would constantly go back and turn away from the things of God. God was, they would follow God for a generation or two and then turn and follow the false gods of the land. Back and forth. And that's how you have the book of Judges in the Bible. Well, this period in the first Samuel is in that transition time where it's still the period where the Bible says that everyone did that which was right in their own eyes. So there was no king in Israel. God was working through prophets and working through the judges of the day. And one of these judges was a man named Eli. Eli was a judge before the people, so he would represent the God before the people. He would determine what was right, what was wrong, but he was also a priest. He was the high priest of the day. So he had a double important responsibility. Not only was he going to judge the people, but he was also as a priest representing the people before God. And his role was to Go before the people, before God. I'm a pastor. I'm not a priest. So therefore, I don't go to God on your behalf, and I don't represent you before God. The Bible says we do that through Jesus Christ, which we'll talk about in a little bit. But at this time, Eli would represent the people. So the people would bring their sacrifices to Eli and to the other priests. For 40 years, he was their high priest. But Eli was a very apathetic man towards the things of God. He would go through the motions of religion and the religious practice. But he did not pass that on to the next generation. And he had two sons, and his sons' names were Hophni and Phinehas. 
And the Bible describes them in a really negative way, and it calls them worthless men. There's not really a way to get around that. They were worthless men. These were men that were brought before God, and they were set apart as priests to represent the people before God. They were the go-between, and what they were doing was total debauchery and evil worship. They were not men that knew the Lord at all. And what they were doing, this may not sound that impressive or, or bad to you, but their whole mindset of the holy things of God was absolutely skewed. So therefore, one of the things that they would do is they would supposed to take a three-pronged hook or fork and put it into the pot of the boiled sacrificed meat and take some of it out in order to provide for the priest. And that's the way that God set it up so the priests were provided for in their families. So it's kind of like a payment for for making the sacrifice on their behalf, they would go through and take part of the meat and they would keep it for their family. But that wasn't good enough for Hophni and Phineas. So what they would do is before the, the meat was boiled and put aside, they would take the choice cuts of the meat. And people were outraged at that, like, what are you doing? And they would threaten the people saying, well, basically, we're going to kill you if you don't let us take this meat. Can you imagine going to the temple and knowing you're going to get ripped off. You're going to sacrifice to God because you want to worship God and you know you're going to get ripped off by the priests. These men were also very immoral men. The Bible describes how they, and I won't go into any detail, but they were very immoral with the ladies around the the, the, the tabernacle and the temple worship at that time. So these men, their whole mindset was skewed. During this time, they had a thing called the Ark of the Covenant, which was critical in the worship of God through the tabernacle and the temple worship. The Ten Commandments were inside of this Ark. And inside of this, they had a number of different things. They had some manna that God provided for the people to feed the people through the time of the wilderness was inside of this. They had a particular staff that Moses held that was a special staff. That was through, all these things were very symbolic and memorial. And on top of it, you see the two angels with the wings touching. And that was called the mercy seat. And once a year, they would take the sacrificial blood from the, that, that Passover, a day of atonement, and they would take it in and they would sprinkle it over the mercy seat, representing the covering for another year of the sins of the people from God. All this was very symbolic and also incredibly holy before God. And Israel was going to battle with one of their longtime enemies, the Philistines. And as they went out to battle, they were defeated very quickly, and 4,000 men were killed in this first battle. And that scared the Israelites. And they thought to themselves, what are we going to do? And they came up with a smart, or really dumb idea, to take the Ark of the Covenant and use it kind of like a lucky charm. Maybe you have, and I don't encourage you to, but maybe you have a rabbit's foot and you rub. Or maybe you played a really, really good game of soccer and you're wearing one particular socks and you're never ever going to wash those socks ever again. And you're going to wear your lucky socks to every game so that you can win. And that's kind of what they did with the things of God. They were defeated by the Philistines and they thought to themselves, we know what we'll do. We'll get out our lucky charm, the Ark of the Covenant, and that will go before us into battle. Remember I said earlier that every single one of us has faith 
in something, not necessarily in things of God. These people had a great deal of faith. It says in 1 Samuel chapter 3, verse 5, As soon as the ark of the covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty cry. They thought to themselves, fantastic, our lucky charm is going to defeat the Philistines and we're going to win a mighty battle. And they shouted out and it says, the earth resounded. They had faith, but they had it in the wrong place. Absolutely, they should have had faith in God, but they didn't have faith in God. They had faith in a lucky charm, thinking, God, you're like our, our genie. If we just tell you what to do, you're going to do whatever it is that we tell you to do. They had faith in themselves. And Eli at this time is an elderly man. He's 98 years old. The Bible describes that he's been warned a number of times by God himself and by other godly people around him that his sons were doing wrong. And rather than stepping up and correcting them, he let it go like an apathetic father. And let it go, and let it go, and let it go. Over the course of 40 years, now Eli is a 98-year-old man. He's elderly. He cannot see very well. The Bible says that he is actually fat from the food that he's been stealing from the temple. In other words, he's been overeating and overindulging, and he sent off the ark. He was, that wasn't living in a godly way at all. You think God would have just defeated the Philistine army just to prove that he was God. But you know what God allowed to happen? He allowed Israel to be defeated. Earlier, they had 4,000 people die. This, now, in this battle, they had 30,000 men die in battle. And the worst part was Phineas and his brother Hophni were killed in battle. The Ark of the Covenant, and this is the worst part, the Ark of the Covenant was taken by the Philistines as spoil for war. And one lone person runs back into this place called Shiloh to give the news. And as he's giving the news, people start weeping in the town. And he runs in to see Eli the priest. And as he runs in to see him, he shares the news. <sighs> Imagine the, the out of breath. He probably has blood on him. He's, he's, he's dirty. And he's, and he's getting the news out as fast as he can. You think of the humanity behind this. This wasn't some guy just coldly giving the, the news. This was something passionate. He just witnessed his brothers being killed in battle. And he shares with Eli the defeat. And he shares with Eli the death of his sons. And then he says, And the ark has been taken by the Philistines. This wasn't a trinket. This was the picture of God being with them. And the Bible says, and I'll just ex explain what the Bible teaches and says, he was shocked and he fell backward and he broke his neck and died. Tell you what, the Bible is not G-rated. It's <laughs> at least M. After that, the news came to Phineas's wife. Okay, I'm going to come to Ichabod. You ready? Now we finally come to Ichabod. I'm just going to read what it says in 1 Samuel chapter number 4. If you have your Bibles, you're welcome to follow along. If not, it will be on the screens for you to follow as well. It says this, Now his daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant about to give birth. 
And when she heard the news that the ark of God was captured and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed and gave birth. For the pains came upon her. And here's the key. And about the time of her death. So she dies in childbirth. This news comes as such a shock. She ends up, she herself dies in childbirth. The women attending to her said to her, Do not be afraid, for you have borne a son, which was a great honor at the time. And she did not answer or pay attention. And she named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel, because the ark of God had been captured, and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, The glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured you think about the humanity behind those few verses a lady is dying of a heartbreak while she's giving birth and what should be a wonderful celebration day of the birth of her son turns out to be the last and the worst day of her life and she memorializes that by naming her son Ichabod please don't name your child Ichabod Maybe name your cat Ichabod. That may be more accurate. The glory of God has departed. Every single one of us, as I started in the very beginning with this statement, we trust in something. You have faith in something. Our principle for today is I must trust God and live by faith. When we fail to trust God, we continue to have faith. But faith in what? I'm going to walk through these points quite quickly. First of all, we have a daily choice to trust in myself. I trust in myself. You can go through the motions, and the attitude behind that is, as long as I look okay, then I must be okay. As long as I can impress everyone. I'm going to pick on church for a moment. As long as I walk in and everyone thinks, boy, that person looks very spiritual today, then I must be okay. And we start to trust in ourselves, in our own ability and our own values. And what we see here in 1 Samuel chapter number 2, verse 12, this is Eli's sons being described. That's Phineas and Hophni. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. And they did not know the Lord. That's one of the saddest verses in the Bible. Because these men had every opportunity to know God. They were given special privilege to be priests before God. They were given incredible responsibility. And oftentimes when we trust in ourselves, we trust in our religion. As long as I'm religious, then I must be okay. We can often trust in our religion and saying, well, I read the Bible once or even good for you for being in church today, but church does not save or change you. We can go through the motions of something year after year, decade after decade. These these young men would have grown up in this. They would have known it. They would have known the law. They would have known the practices. They would have also known the loopholes. And they went through the religious practice. On the outside, they looked very spiritual. On the inside, they said they were worthless men. Other versions of the Bible, and the word that's translated as worthless, is a word that's called Belial. And the word Belial, I'm expanding your word power today. The word Belial is not something you want to be described as. 
And in other versions of the Bible, they describe it as they were sons of Belial. The Belial is used to describe things that are evil, things that are satanic. And in other parts of the Bible, it describes Satan as Belial. So this is using a very strong statement saying, basically, these are not sons of God. These are sons of the devil. They are not doing the things of God at all. In 2 Corinthians chapter number 6, the Apostle Paul makes a distinction between Jesus Christ and this Belial. And it says, what accord has Christ with Belial? And then he continues on in verse number 16. And he says, what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, as God said. And he continues on and he quotes from the book of Exodus and the book of Leviticus and the book of Ezekiel. And the Apostle Paul, as he's writing here, is making this distinction between Jesus and Belial. And he goes, and I will make my dwelling place among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, they shall go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be your father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. He's making a very important distinction. And really, to be honest with you, we're just scratching the surface of those verses right there. Understanding that Jesus Christ is not just bringing us to go through a religious practice. We can also, when we trust in ourselves, we can trust in our heritage. We look upon things and say, well, I grew up in church or I went to a Christian school. And you can start naming off your spiritual resume. And there's a huge difference between a resume where you're trusting in yourself, you're trusting in your religion, trusting in your heritage. I've spoken with people that have told me, of course I'm going to heaven. I'm an Australian. <laughs> and that's not a joke. And I, I said that with a straight face, but I'm, I'm not surprised you laughed at it. Because we understand what Australia's like. And I've had people tell me in all sincerity, of course I'm a Christian. My mother was a Christian. Or people said my grandparents were Christian. Or people said, I was christened as a baby. Or various things that they did that was a religious heritage. My personal heritage, I have a, I have a very godly heritage. My grandfather was a pastor. My father is a pastor. My uncle's a pastor. My cousin's a pastor. My father-in-law's a pastor. My brother-in-law's a pastor. And I'm a pastor. And I look at that and go, well, of course it's the family business. But do you know what? That has nothing to do with my salvation and my trusting. Praise God for my heritage. But we have to make that choice for ourselves. When we trust in ourselves, we can trust in our religion. We can trust in our heritage. But we also have to accept the consequences. There's a statement that says, you can choose your sin, but you cannot choose your consequences. That's exactly what God did. He gave Eli a choice many times and warned him. Come back. You're going the wrong direction. And he says in 1 Samuel 3, verse 13, And I declared to him, this is God talking, that I'm about to punish his house forever for the iniquity that he knew because his sons were blaspheming God and he did not restrain them. He knew exactly what he was doing. 
And is this is Eli's response at the end of that judgment. Verse number 18, it gives the response. And this is the response of an apathetic man. So Samuel told him everything and hid nothing from him. And he said, this is Eli talking as an old man who's just been told your family is going to be judged. Now, Eli had the choice at this time to repent and to turn away from the evil things that they had been doing and to say, God, please forgive me. But instead, this is his response. It is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. He continued down his road of apathy, saying, well, I've already gone this far. Might as well just keep on going. Let me challenge you and encourage you. You may be down that road where you've been warned and warned and warned. And the Holy Spirit has convicted you and convicted you and convicted you. Don't be like an Eli to go, well, whatever will be, will be. Turn and let God change your life because today can be a changing day from your negative past. We can go on because Ichabod is not for us today. The glory of God has not departed from us. We go on, we can, when we contrast the choice to trust in myself, the opposite side of that is we trust in God. Now you're in church, you probably could have guessed that one. Because it's not hard, it's not supposed to be confusing. But we need to be reminded of this again and again and again. And it's nice when something just works. A couple weeks ago, I turned my sprinklers on. And you know, I, I have automatic sprinklers. And I was thinking to myself, please just work. Please just work. And it didn't. And you turn it on, and one of the, I just changed one of the solenoids out, and I know it's going to take me five times longer than it needs to take, and I'm going to go through and break things as I go. And it's nice when you just turn things on, and it works. Some of you are putting your Christmas lights on, and you pull out the box of the pile of Christmas lights that you had from the previous year, and you start unwinding them, and as you unwind them, you finally lay them all out, then you plug them in, and you go, oh, it didn't work. I remember my dad in the, in the old days when the, the Christmas lights were, if one of them went out in the row, the entire row went out. And he would be up on the roof of the house going one at a time, pulling out the Christmas lights, putting in a new bulb, finding out which one it was. And it doesn't matter which end you start at, it's always the last section. It's nice when things just work. God hasn't made trusting in God confusing. He's laid it out and said, here it is for you. You have a choice to trust in yourself because every single one of you live by faith. Will you trust God and live by faith in God? When God gave a promise to Eli, this is part of this is some strong words that God's sharing with him, but it's actually something wonderful in these strong words. 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 35 And notice the I and the my statements. And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest. We're going to come back to that in just a moment. Who will do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. And I will build him a sure house and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. That right there has a double meaning. God, by that time, was taking away the honor of being a priest. Eli had a heritage of being part of the priestly family. 
it gone all the way back to them to the first priest, a man named Aaron. He was in that lineage. And God says, I'm going to take this away from your family and give it to another. And then later on, we find that another family becomes the priests and carry on that heritage and that honor of being the priest before God. But this has a double meaning. Not only does he say that I'm going to take and my priesthood is going to go on. He talks about before my anointed forever. Do you know who he's talking about? And you're in church. It's probably not a surprise. It's Jesus. He's talking about Jesus at this time saying, I'm going to come and bring a faithful priest to you. And Jesus is described as our great high priest. Because we have a relationship with God. And that's the, the big difference. The huge difference between a religion and a relationship. Religion is described as, here's a set of rules. As long as you follow the rules, you'll be okay. We have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. A relationship says that we can grow and develop, and it's Him toward us, not us trying to get God's attention. This is describing Jesus. We can contrast Eli, the priest, versus Jesus Christ, our great high priest, our go-between. In the book of Hebrews, chapter number 4, verses 14 through 16, it says, Since then we have a great high priest, that's Jesus, who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, because we understand that Jesus was just like us. He suffered like a man. But one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Thank God we don't have to sacrifice like they did back in ancient days. We have a high priest, Jesus Christ, who is our go-between between us and God. So therefore, when we pray, we pray in authority. And it's a little bit of tradition, but when I pray, I'll pray in Jesus' name, amen. And that's a constant reminder to me, and I actually do it on purpose, to remind me who gives me any authority to talk to the creator of the universe. It's my high priest, Jesus. We see in, in John chapter 14, verse 13, it says, this is Jesus talking, Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Jesus Christ right now, the Bible says, has ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father and is making, what the Bible says, intercession for us. So when we pray, we are praying directly to God through the power of the Holy Spirit and the authority of Jesus Christ because he's our priest. So when we trust in God, I can't do that myself. We must trust totally in God and our relationship with God, not religion, but our relationship with him. We also have an advocate with the Father. The Bible says that Jesus Christ is advocating before us. If you can imagine Satan, the great accuser, accusing us, saying, do you remember what that person did? Do you remember what that person did? And Jesus goes, God, they're part of us. Now, God doesn't forget those things, but if those, uh, it's a good way to imagine Jesus Christ being our advocate our go-between, standing before us like a, like a lawyer before a judge, saying, don't worry, God, he's one of us. It says in 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, My little children, I'm writing these things to you that you may not sin. 
But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Who's the advocate? Jesus Christ, the righteous. It also gives us the ability to worship God. We have a relationship with God, and now we can truly worship God. Rather than worshiping in fear, we worship in praise. I'm going to read several verses here, and then I'm going to come to a conclusion. In Philippians chapter number 2, verses 5 through 10, it says this, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. And here's the real key in verses 10 and 11. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And the very last line brings us right back to the very beginning of this message. What is our ultimate goal? To glorify God. And what we can find here is that when we choose to trust God, when we live by faith in God, we can fulfill God's ultimate goal for us to ultimately glorify God. And it comes all around. So often we make life so much more difficult than it needs to be. God has a sense of humor. The Philistines has taken the ark of God. If you continue reading through chapter 5 and chapter 6 of 1 Samuel, you'll discover God brought judgment upon the Philistines. And literally the Philistines says, get this away. And they send it to somebody else and they go, no, get this away. And they send it to someone else. And finally they come up with the idea of putting the Ark of the Covenant on a cart with two cows. They sent it on its way, hoping that it would just find its way home. And the Bible says they bellowed or they mooed all the way back to Israel. And they arrived back in Israel and people were surprised and they celebrated the Ark coming back. But before that happened, they had brought the Ark of the Covenant into their own place of worship because they respected God. So they brought it into their own place of worship, a house of a god named Dagon. Dagon was a fish god and it was a god of fertility. There's a statue in that temple for this evil god, Dagon. And the Bible says they left and in the next morning, that statue had fallen over. Its head had fallen off and its arms had broken off. God even makes the false idols bow down before him. Let me encourage you. As you go out this week, you're going to have a choice to trust in yourself or to trust in God. I'm going to make a really bold statement here. You will negatively affect your current and next generation if you fail to trust God. We don't want Ichabods in our family heritage. I don't want them in my family heritage. So therefore, I'm going to go right back to the very first verse I read. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31, it says, Whatever you do, do all to the glory of God.